Planet Pod, essential listening for everyone who cares about the planet. Welcome to Planet Pod with me, Amanda Carpenter. As lockdown continues here in the UK and across the world, our horizons may feel as if they have narrowed to an uncomfortable degree. We now know every inch of our indoor space and what for many of us is our very limited outdoor space as well. However, while our immediate landscapes may feel relentlessly unchanging, the natural world is relishing the lack of human intervention. The tales of deer snoozing in the sun in central Romford or of goats wandering down the high street in Landudno are well-known examples. But beyond these headline grabbers, all over the country, people are observing, recording and delighting in the wilder side of wildlife that is emboldened or simply just more noticeable as a result of the pause in our usual relentless activity and noise. On this episode of Planet Pod, join us on a journey through some of wild landscapes. With the help of my guests, let us take you metaphorically by the hand and lead you across the UK to some of those places where nature has been quietly recolonizing and rewilding, and in places restoring the landscape to a state that our grandparents, great-grandparents, and their great-grandparents would have taken for granted. Let me introduce you to our guides. Alistair Driver is Director of Rewilding Britain. Alistair is well known in conservation and catchment management circles. He was appointed as the first ever conservation officer for the Thames catchment in 1984 and held that role for 18 years. He was head of conservation for the Environment Agency until 2016 when he left to take up a new challenge at Rewilding Britain. He's a fellow of the Institute of Ecology and Environmental Management, and he's an honorary professor in applied environmental management at the University of Exeter. Alistair, welcome to the pod and thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for having me. My second guest, Peter Fines, is an author and publisher. While at Time Out, he nurtured his lifelong obsession with old guidebooks, creating the award-winning city guides, walking books, and titles about Britain's countryside and seaside. His beautiful book, Oak and Ash and Thorn, quite rightly won the Guardian Best Nature Book of the Year, and his most recent title, Footnotes, follows in the footsteps of 12 inspirational writers from the wilds of Skye and Snowdon to inner city Birmingham. Who better then to guide our imaginations across the currently inaccessible wild landscapes? Peter, welcome and thank you for joining us on the pod. Hello, it's very nice to be here. We talk a lot on the pod about rewilding, and some of our listeners may have caught our other episodes at NEP or Ebono Common. But for those who haven't, Alistair, can we start with a little explanation about what rewilding is and crucially is not? Because it really isn't all about wolves, is it? No, most certainly not. Um, in a nutshell, rewilding is the, the long-term, large-scale restoration of ecosystems to the point where nature is allowed to take care of itself. But I have to particularly emphasize long-term, this is definitely a marathon, not a sprint. It will take decades, if not more than a century, to get to that point where nature is allowed to take care of itself. And I want to emphasize the scale, large scale. We are talking about blocks of land of thousands of hectares on block for one to be able to apply the rewarding principles properly. And some of those key principles are very quickly that people and communities and livelihoods are absolutely fundamental. Homo sapiens is a species that belongs in the natural environment, needs to be part of it. Can it belong there without having a detrimental impact on other species? Um, natural processes, you know, making sure that nature is determining 
how things happen rather than man determining how things happen. Making sure that we try to work at a bigger and bigger scale and making sure that we're in it for the long term. And one just final thing I want to say in this sort of summary explanation, rewilding is not about turning the clock back to some point in time. Think of the re in rewilding as meaning wilding once again, making it wild again, not turning it back to a thousand years ago or 200 years ago. It's about in enabling the, the ecosystem uh, and the, all the species that belong within it to be fit for the future, to be fit for future changes in climate, fit for working and living and being alongside man without man having a detrimental impact on it. Well, it's fascinating you say that because I think one of the, out of that, you know, description, two things really hit me, you know, and the one is that we as people have a, a crucial role to play in this. So this is about a relationship between the two of us and a balance. And it's not this sense that we'll just exclude people from large chunks of land and make it, you know, beautiful, pristine and, and, and have no interaction. And the other is that idea that we're not recreating something. We're actually allowing things to take themselves forward. So, so, and I think that's probably a misconception about rewilding is that it's just letting yeah. go and, and, and going back, you know, and it's not just, you know, recreating a centuries old landscape, is it? Yeah, I mean, it, it is a misconception of the, the general view of rewild, rewilding now, but you will have seen probably people in the past writing along those lines uh, about rewilding. But So there are many views of it, but the consensus is building now that the, the, the principles and priorities that I just described are those that are appropriate. And, and man is very much part of that, a species that belongs in this environment. So we must you know, remember that at every step of the way and take account of how livelihoods and communities are affected and, and make sure that we bring them along with us rather than trying to impose something on them. You must be having a lot of interesting debates at Rewilding Britain about, uh, given that you're not necessarily just looking back, uh, as to what species you are trying to encourage to come back and which perhaps new species are going to be allowed to colonize or, or um, spread across Britain because there's yeah. always a native tree debate that springs up at this point. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I mean, I have to stress that, that species reintroductions themselves are not the top priority. It's about getting natural processes restored, healthy functioning river systems, getting our soil right, getting the mix of vegetation types right and the mix of herbivores and the mix of carnivores that eat the herbivores that eat the vegetation. And, and of course, there are there are stages along that journey that you can't yet meet because you can't suddenly jump to having wolves and bears and lynx back. So one mm. has to try and get as close as one can to the natural regime. Um, but certainly species reintroductions are part of the picture, but one should only really think be thinking about that when the ecosystem is ready to receive them. So for example, beavers, you know, many of our many parts of our country are now ready for beavers ecologically. Uh, and the challenge now is to persuade government that actually this is a really, really significant step they can take to restore a healthy functioning river environment. Alistair, would oh, the beavers sorry. come back if we didn't put them in place? I mean, are there enough of some of these native populations for them to, to recolonize? Because what's striking about the experience that a lot of us are having at the moment is, is I'm not sure that these animals are coming back. It's just that we're noticing them or we're not preventing them from coming into spaces they might have come into, hence, you know, the deer in Romford. So would something like a beaver come back because there's a nascent 
local population or did they have to physically be reintroduced? Um, well, they, there, there were no uh, wild beavers in England 20 years ago. Okay. And, and so, uh, but there were some escaping in Scotland around that time. Now there is a quite a big population in Scotland. So over centuries, yes, gradually that population and the few wild populations that we have in England would eventually start to spread over centuries. But it would be a very, very slow process. Um, and it would certainly would not be happening in the timescale that we need to meet our climate change targets and to meet our biodiversity restoration targets. You know, both of those things are critical and we need to act within years or, or, or a few decades at most, can't wait centuries. So, Alistair, can I ask you, what, have you noticed any changes during lockdown um, and, and the restrictions? I mean, has it affected some of the rewilding projects or is it just that those of us who are perhaps, you know, lay, lay folk in this world are just noticing things we didn't notice before, such as, you know, deer becoming bolder or, or perhaps some of the, 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 the birds of prey that we hadn't seen in our skies above our towns. I mean, has there been a particular impact on the rewilding projects you're involved in? Yeah, I think it's important to distinguish now, we're getting into a bit of detail about the, in, the impact of lockdown on wildlife. So the things that I notice and that I am most aware of in my community are wildlife common and fairly versatile wildlife like deer and foxes and badgers, uh, etc., being more visible because there is less disturbance out there. But also, there is no doubt that we are being more observant and we are having more time to be more observant when we are out and about because more people are out walking now than ever I have ever seen uh, in this. And I've been in this community over 30 years. So more people are out and more people are spending more time. And, you know, I've initiated various educational activities through our village Facebook page in terms of identifying wildlife and seeing stuff and and people are really lapping it up. So so the common and widespread wildlife that is more used to quickly adapting is doing that. And it's what it's doing is look it basically things like deer and foxes are looking for places to find food and looking for new habitat and straying much closer and even into town centres. In the rewilding areas, now I, I can't tell you what's happening in the rewilding areas because I don't live in one and, I, and I'm not allowed to visit them. That's the biggest downside of this for me is I can't get out and visit potential rewilding sites by invitation from landowners. But I'm, not, I'm in touch with a lot of them and I follow a lot of them through social media and vice versa. And I'm not aware of any really significant changes in, that, in those situations because these are, are already areas that are quite wild anyway. Um, where there's quite a diversity of nature moving in the right direction. So I think it's mainly in and around the urban fringes that we are, and, and village fring, community fringes that we are seeing the biggest changes. I, I can go into a bit more detail about the pros and cons because it's not all, it's not necessarily all good news. There can be some downsides, but maybe talk about that later. Yeah, and that's often a debate, isn't it? Certainly, you know, the beavers, I mean, you're just coming back to your beavers very quickly. Um, you know, there is a debate about whether beavers are a good thing or a bad thing, but but before we move on, I just wanted to check with you, how would beavers be a positive impact in climate change? Where is the positive benefit from having a beaver com community? Well, yeah, be so beavers uh, contribute net positively, if you like, to several different ecosystem services, several different aspects of the natural environment, which impact on us as humans. Flood risk management, 
they help slow the flow, they help buffer the flow, um, which takes the peak off big flood flood events. And that's been proven um, from, from various studies around the world. Secondly, they trap sediment and pollutants through their damming systems. They tend to reduce the amount of nutrient and sediment uh, and pollutant discharging on downstream. Again, that's proven through studies in Devon, for example. And they, through certain activities, they will also sequester more carbon. Some of their activities release more carbon, some, some store more. It's, it's a balancing act with that, but overall, there are net benefits. But probably the biggest benefit of all is the incredible biodiversity that they create, the wetland biodiversity that they then generate through their enge incredible engineering activities means that they are way better than us at doing it. And of course, they are free. They are virtually, virtually no cost. There are times when one need to, would need to manage certain things they do, but it's not beyond the wit of man to do that. I'm involved in the steering group. We've produced a management strategy for future releases, which is entirely doable. The rest of Europe does it. All the, virtually the whole of Western Europe does it. And, um, and they are the beneficiaries of what the, these amazing things beavers can do. So music to my ears, and I suspect to our producer's ears, as he's not only um, a committed environmentalist, he was also a, a flood management expert. So the idea that we've got, and an engineer, so natural engineers who could stop flooding. Um, but, but, but I need to, I think we need to move on to talk about wild landscapes in general, because one of the great things about rewilding spaces is they have that tremendous sense of, of, of freedom and wildness. And wild landscapes are enormously important for our imagination and well-being, aren't they, Peter? And some of the things that you've written about over the last few years and trying to connect people to those landscapes, what do they mean to, 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 to writers and, and, and people who, who have, for us particularly at the moment, who feel a little bit locked down, whose imagination's probably feeling a bit confined? What, 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 what do they represent? Well, I mean, obviously they represent freedom and joy and wonder and, uh, and all of those things. Uh, I'm having a, probably quite a typical lockdown in that I'm in a city, I'm in, in London, and uh, I have a Clapham Common nearby, so I managed to get to that quite often, but I've been thinking uh, about what I'm missing most, I suppose, uh, and the sea comes to mind immediately. Uh, I would love to see the sea again, and um, the bluebell woods, I think this is probably the first time for decades that I haven't been out to get to see the bluebells. Uh, Clapham Common has a, a scattering of bluebells, um, but it's not quite the same. So it's interesting what Alistair was saying earlier about uh, people are paying more attention uh, to what's around them because of course we've all you know our our line of sight has dwindled so we're seeing you know everything much more acutely I think uh, but at the same time I'm spending a fair amount of time slumped on my sofa watching Netflix because it's it's you know it's very hard to maintain that level of enthusiasm about something even the natural world at times you know when when, when you are feeling constrained and I realize our lockdown is not nearly as intense as it is in Spain and other countries. I don't know how I would have coped with that at all, but uh, you know, I am able to get out every day and, and see spring happening. But it, it hasn't been that, uh, spring has not been that avalanche of, uh, of wonder that um, I've been used to in previous years. So you're not finding the enforced period of boredom is helping to develop your inner landscape, which is a um, theory that my husband propounds regularly about yeah, the need to have I, boredom I mean, to create. I've, I've often propounded this to my children that boredom is a tremendous thing because <laughs> uh, they're not used to boredom. But um, no, I suppose my, 
Uh, it's true. I mean, Wordsworth is the great proponent of this, isn't he? The lines written above Tintin Abbey, uh, which are just full of the, of the you know, wonder of nature, uh, were written five years after he was actually there, and they're, they're written reflecting back. So he's drawing on a reservoir of strength. He, literally, the, the, the memories of Tintin Abbey and the Wye Valley are bringing him this, this, uh, this food for his soul. Um, and I think that's a really important point that for many people you know, who can't get out now, we can nonetheless track back our favorite places and revisit the, the sea and the bluebird woods in our minds. Uh, and for Wordsworth, it was more powerful because when he was first there, he was younger and he was experiencing it as a young person. It was extremely intense, uh, but it was a young sort of unthinking uh, response to nature. Whereas, you know, he describes being stuck in the city five years later and, uh, and drawing a different kind of deeper message from nature. Uh, and it was those sort of memories that made him reflect about the, uh, more deeply on how everything is connected. Um, and that's, you know, is that actually the absence from nature that gave him that revelation. And this is, um, if I may, this is a, a key area where lockdown and response of wildlife to lockdown and people's appreciation of it comes together with rewilding. Because virtually all, let me just think, yeah, I'm pretty sure all the rewilding sites I'm dealing, I'm dealing with, I'm dealing with about 20, over 20 large rewilding sites, size of Nep or Ennerdale or bigger in England at the moment. All of those sites are rural sites. Some are quite close to cities. Like Eastern Moors at Sheffield is only a few miles from Sheffield city centre. But, but they're rural sites. And the, the, the challenge we face is, can we recreate a greater degree of wildness in our urban green spaces? Yes. So that there is, there is a greater variety of things for people to see and a greater opportunity, just in their normal lives, to bump into something, a species, for example, a plant or a, a mammal that they wouldn't normally expect to see. And, and I think that's one of the things we need to latch onto. That yes, rewilding at scale, you know, really means you can only do it properly in, in rural situations. But you can make a long, you can take a, a big step up that spectrum if, you, if we take some of our bigger and, and, and more extensive green spaces and look to do significant wilding interventions in those places. I think that's, yeah. No, I think that's really exciting. And, and it's uh, obviously 70 or 80 percent of the population lives in cities or towns. Yeah. And uh, at times like these, we, we crave nature. Normally, you know, we can get out if we're lucky enough. But actually, the, I write about this a lot, this whole ludicrous disconnect between nature and humanity and the idea that somehow there's a, there's a division. That I think yeah. you said that earlier, Alistair, that somehow Homo sapiens is not part of nature. This is one of the big problems we have, I think. I've been slightly worried. I know our lockdown has not been that long, but I've, I've been worried. One of my concerns about what happens after is it, it may have intensified our alienation from nature rather than, um, rather than uh, you know, making us feel more connected to nature. Yeah, I think, well, I think that, that again comes down to where you are. So you, you, know, you, are, you are stretched for good opportunities to, to walk into healthy in interesting green spaces yeah. whereas here in you know i live in a village not far from reading only four miles out of reading in the very busy thames valley but mm. here people can just walk straight out into farmland 
and you know hear a cuckoo and and see orange tip butterflies everywhere in the hedgerows and and yes. uh, you know egrets on the river now and 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 they love it they love it because they're suddenly now engaging more than they ever did before and they're seeing more and now uh, uh, as I touched on earlier, now I'm helping them to learn stuff about what they're seeing. So, so it's a very, I think it's a very, I feel very sorry for people who live in, you know, in urban, uh, intensive urban developed areas where there's no interest in green space within walking distance. You know, for them, I think you're right. It, it's almost, it almost means it's completely irrelevant, doesn't it? Yes, in our minds anyway, there's a sort of, uh, there's a wall around cities, really, and then you get the suburbia, and then you get the country and so-called nature. But of course, you know, the foxes, etc., have all travelled up into our, I mean, our, the foxes are getting mad at this time of year on my busy London streets. Yeah. Uh, but uh, they've managed to make their way in, and um, there are many sort of corridors of nature right into the city, and it'd be wonderful uh, for people to be thinking more in a rewilding sense about how to bring nature into the heart of the city. Yeah. This is where rivers are so important. I know it yeah. comes back to my background, but you're trying to create connectivity along river systems so mm. that people can actually walk out from a city into the into the rural fringes. Yes, of course. And that's a lovely idea. come in and transit in either direction. And it's really important that we don't that we don't let this debate exclude people because, as you say, Peter, huge numbers of us do live in cities um, mm. and and in towns. And actually, um, you know, one of the things that I've been struck by, you know, during the lockdown is that people have been more aware of the of the um, wildlife around them, even if it's in a quite a small scale. So, opportunity to observe insects or or bird life as you walk down your street because there's likely to be some street planting of some trees or some wild margins that the council haven't got around to cutting. So, so there are opportunities for people to connect with nature in that sense. But, and it's really important that we don't turn this into a country urban debate and we say mm. that actually rewilding only belongs on those vast estates because actually this is something that we all need to take responsibility for. Yeah, absolutely. As, absolutely. as, as is responsibility for, for the natural world. But, but can I ask you, Peter, can you tell us a little bit about some of your kind of explorations when you were able to go out and walk because walking is hugely important to you and there is that there's that connection isn't there between the creativity and walking and the actual act of walking and and you mentioned Wordsworth earlier and you know and of course Wordsworth and his colleagues were great walkers weren't they they walked for miles and miles and miles every day um and I would be in their poetry yeah, I would be failing in my duty if I didn't quote a bit of Wordsworth because I was for, formally instructed to do so by, by my other half. Um, and he asked me to say, one impulse from a vernal wood mm-hmm. may teach you more of man, of moral evil and of good than all the sages can. And right, I think right. that those are stupendous words to lead us into some of your kind of, um, you know, discussions and, and thoughts about the, the links between wild places and walking and writing. Yes, I mean, artists, writers, everyone really has responded to the landscape uh, forever. So uh, my most recent book, Footnotes, um, what I did is I followed 12 writers around Britain uh, and I chose a historical spread. So the earliest is a man called Gerald of Wales who travelled in 1188 around Wales, as you'd expect. Uh, and the most recent was Beryl Bainbridge who travelled and smoked and drank away around England in 1983. Um, and I was trying to look at, I was interested, A, in how they responded to the landscape, which is a particular interest of mine, but also how much has changed since then, um, which I think you know, is also relevant to our rewilding conversation. 
because uh, often these writers are not read. I chose Charles Dickens, Wilkie Connors, Enid Blyton, I spent a lot of time. They're not read for their nature of writing, but all of them, actually, if you look at them, have had a lot to say about the landscape they are encountering. And it's absolutely fascinating. Wilkie Collins went around Cornwall in 1850, uh, before the railways got there. So it's, uh, his book called, is called Rambles Beyond Railways. And uh, he was literally there two years before the first railway opened up and Cornwall was changed, uh, brought in line with the rest of the country. Uh, but his reaction to the people and the, the landscape he saw and the, the sheer number of pilchards that are being pulled from the sea every day. Uh, and also he describes in some detail the kinds of plants, the flowers that are there. But just incidentally, it's not, he's not focused on, he's not actually a sort of a botanist in any way. But it, it's, it really brings to life how much has changed. So my, my book ended up being as much about today as it was about then. Because, and it certainly was never intended to be, and it is not in the main, a, a lament for, oh my, look what we've lost. Because obviously we've made huge advances in so many ways, but it is interesting, Gerald of Wales in 1188 is describing valleys that are just, um, well, certain species were never there, but it's just, it's still a wild wood there. There are still wolves there in 1188 and beavers, of course. And uh, it's wonderful to read that because it reminds us, this is what the landscape was. These are the species that were there. And he is walking at his ease through it, slightly concerned about being pulled off his horse and murdered occasionally. But. Will you share a bit with us? Uh, I can read you Gerald of Wales, if that's okay. It's, uh, I've, got, um, I've got two pages. Uh, I always like to warn people, about four or five minutes probably. But, um, I'll we, have a, we have a captive audience here. Exactly, exactly. I'll read Podcast listeners. And then because it's... Um, uh, he's travelling around Wales with the Archbishop of Canterbury in 1188, trying to whip up support for the Third Crusade and, and enlist the Welsh archers. Uh, and I'm following in his footsteps. And I'm in the Grunvor Valley. It is hard to stand and piece together how close any of it might be to what Gerald and Baldwin once knew. For starters, most of the trees are close-packed conifers, arranged into straight rows for harvesting. Britain only has one native tree, the Scots pine or Pimus sylvestris, and I can't see any of them here. More to the point, in Gerald's day, there were no plantations, just the remnants of the wildwood. On the other side of the valley, a huge, surgically neat square of woodland has been carved out, the timber driven away, leaving behind a churn of wheel ruts and splintered bark. Well, they'll be back again another day to plant more trees, we hope, and this time they may even include a fringe of native species. Sustainability and diversity have found their way into the modern forester's handbook. But when he came this way, Gerald would have ridden through a wild tangle of oak, hazel, thorn and ash, or stopped to rest under an ancient and solitary pine, among an outpouring of wildflowers, and the sound of the birds and the insects would have been all enveloping at this time of year, and so much more than just the bickering of crows in the mutilated woods, and the sudden shriek of alarm from a single blackbird, and the low rumble of distant machinery. Can a landscape be old and tired and used up? Put it another way, if we wanted to recreate Gerald's world right here, in this isolated valley, what would we have to remove? The pylons, poles and wires, of course, wheel tracks, tarmac, the RAF tornado that's just now come screaming overhead, fencing, that tumble-down red brick building, the reservoir, four parked cars, the cling of diesel, any last trace of chemical pollutants and pesticides, crisp packets and plastic bottles, footprints with tread, vapour trails in the sky, if we could see them through the fog, all recent arrivals from the animal and plant kingdoms, 
Perhaps we should just squint, block our ears and noses, and stare at an oak leaf. But we can't stop there. We have to think about what we put back in. Wolves, for example, they were still here in 1188, deep in the broadleaf forests, although there was bounty on every pelt. And beavers, they'd been hunted to extinction all over England, but they were hanging on not far from the Grunevoir Valley, as well as in the last few refuges in Scotland. The pine martin, red squirrels, and don't forget the songbirds in lost abundance with their spellbinding songs of rapture. Eagles overhead, beetles underfoot, the fish that leaped and splashed in the river, honeybees and storms of butterflies feeding on a glittering mosaic of flowers, the spreading bellflower and the bastard balm, and people. This valley would have had its people who moved south not so long ago into the new mining towns and villages and booming cities. Would you go back if you could? I'm alone here on a narrow path with the pine forest pressing dark and close, and surely it is reassuring to know, the odds at least are against it, that I'm not about to be dragged into the woods and murdered by a local cutthroat. And when Gerald rode this way, he had much to say about the miraculous gold and silver staff kept in a local church that was particularly efficacious in smoothing away and pressing the pus from glandular swellings and gross tumours which grow so often on the human body. Well, yes, indeed, and thank God for antibiotics. Shifting baseline syndrome works both ways, and most of the time we are oblivious to the advances that sustain us. If I had been lucky enough to be born Gerald's twin in 1146, and not some powerless peasant, I would have been dead of an exploding appendix long before I was able to make this trip. But I do wonder if there's anything we've left behind, do you think, in our centuries-old quest for the perfect picnic spot, the one that is always just around the next corner. Surely we could have called a halt many times and said, this is great with its gorgeous view. Let's stop here. Couldn't we? And when was that, do you think? And where? And who exactly would it have all been for? Peter, that was great. Thank you. And that really, I think, encapsulates that whole... I suppose central dilemma that rewilding is about taking the best of the wild around us, but 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 alongside the needs of us as people. So you know, minus the crisp packets and the plastic bottles, but we don't necessarily want, we don't necessarily want the wolves. Yeah. So I think that really encapsulates that, and 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 the journeys that you talk about in both of your books, really, and that that becoming close to nature through writing and um, through through being out, I think is so important. And and while we are kind of confined at the moment, um, we can find great solace, I think, in, in, in natural writing. And I'm so sorry that you haven't had a bluebell wood. I, yes. I won't rub the fact in that I was able to walk in the bluebell wood up the road for me <laughs> and That's amongst true. the wild garlic. So I'm sorry. I've wild been lucky. Wild garlic too, that. goodness. But, um, but, but yes, I mean, I think that just, just says it all really is, and this is our responsibility. So before we close, I suppose we just should reflect very quickly on what do you think we can take from what we've learned in these last few difficult weeks um, into our kind of what we're now calling post-COVID world in terms of perhaps our relationship with nature and the and, and wild, wild landscapes. I mean, is there something specific, Peter, you'd want to take a learning or an experience or an opportunity that you'd want to ensure we kept with us? Yes, uh, I am intrigued by, by the, the tension, I suppose, the balance between, as we come out, how are we going to respond to this? Because people keep talking about going back to normal, whereas we know normal before COVID, which is not that long ago, was not a good place for nature and it was not a good place for a lot of people. So it's such a difficult thing because on the one hand, I, I fear that we're all going to erupt out of this and just start consuming as much as we can, as fast as we can, leaping back in our planes, getting in our cars. I was, um, 
I was finding myself rather resentful at the noise of the cars around Clapham Common yesterday because things are picking up again and thinking, oh, that's an intrusive noise. But actually, of course, the economy, people's jobs, people's lives are utterly dependent on rebooting the economy. But I guess it's a question of what kind of economy we have. And, and, and I suppose if I have one hope, it's that this is a moment we can all have had a chance to pause and think about what's working, what's not, and how do we incorporate more nature and natural life into people's lives. Yeah, absolutely. And Alistair, from a rewilding perspective, or even from a wilder natural management perspective? Yeah, well, I'm, a, I'm an old-fashioned country naturalist uh, who, you know, thrives on wanting to, you know, wanting to know what everything is and why it's there. And I, you know, having, having um, engaged with the local community in my village in Sonning, and particularly with the kids, you know, I've got 30 families, 50 children actively involved in this Ali's Wild Side Challenge every day, you know, going out to look for things and photograph them. Um, I, you know, I know there's this thirst for education and learning out there, with, particularly with younger children. And uh, I know there's talk of a, a natural history GCSE and, try, and, and trying to help use that to get us more in touch with nature. So that's one big ask is that we see that through and we make it happen because they because children definitely enjoy the challenge of looking for things and and seeing interesting and new new stuff out there the second thing is that we learn that we don't have to be so controlling of the environment mowing everything everywhere spraying chemicals all over it stopping it doing what it wants to do naturally we don't have to do that no one's going to die if we don't do that why don't we just take a step back and review based on evidence, what do we need to do to manage our local environments? And, and, and actually, in so doing, save some money as well. Mm. Not help save the planet, save money. And if we took that step back, I'm sure we would do things very differently. So let, let's hope we learn from it in that way. Yeah. Thank you. Both brilliant calls to, to action to close on. And thank you for sharing your reflections and your thoughts and taking us just outside our, our, our lockdown boxes just for a few minutes. Um, my, my thanks to my guests, Peter Fines and Alistair Driver. Thank you. Thanks. Really enjoyed it. Really interesting. Thank you. Um, and we'll publish links to both Rewilding Britain and to Peter's books on our website. If you want to, and I'm sure you will um, want to buy copies, then do consider using a small local bookshop. The Hive is a really good online site for independent booksellers, which means you can order your books and you don't have to go via Amazon. Uh, huge thanks to my producer, Jim, who's confined to his editing cupboard more than ever, as we cannot get into our lovely little studio. And a huge thank you also to those who are working so hard to keep us safe and keep our basic services running and to our Planet Pod listeners. Keep in touch, tweet us at planet underscore pod or visit the website to download previous rewilding episodes or subscribe. If you listen on a podcast app, please take a moment to rate and review the pod. We really appreciate your support and feedback. Goodbye, take care and stay safe. Planet Pod is brought to you by Akil Management. My thanks to our producer, Jim Haywood, and our researcher, Beth Palmer. And to you, our listeners. Without you, we'd be very lonely. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at planet underscore pod, or visit our website. Please get in touch. We'd love to hear from you with ideas for future programmes. Thanks for listening.